The reading is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you suffered a while, perfect, established, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Good evening, church. All right, it is um, strange for me, but we're coming to the close not only of our teaching series on First Peter, but also very, very close to the end of the year. This is um, uh, the last time I'm going to preach uh, on Sunday nights for this this year as we finish up First Peter. And uh, next Sunday night, we're going to have Zach Geiler back with us. Uh, Zach is not only finishing, or he just finished a quarter of school at West Virginia School of Preaching, he also just got married yesterday. Um, so Zach will be uh, back here next Sunday night, uh, a week from tonight, and then we'll finish uh, 2015. It's been a great year for uh, a lot of good reasons. Um, there's been some difficulty and challenges, but it's been a good year so far. So as we bring to close um, this set of teaching on First Peter, we were intending to work together for your edification uh, this overall idea, which is how do Christians live and navigate life in a culture that is non-Christian. That's what Peter was dealing with in the first century when he was writing this letter to a group of different Christians all over through uh, what was known as Asia, uh, members of uh, the, uh, the Brotherhood who were dealing with life in a non-Christian culture. They were suffering for that. In a lot of ways, you and I are working towards that in, um, in a society and in a culture that is deteriorating with regards to the the hold of Christian faith. As we said several times, we're experiencing what I would call the decay of the external support for Christianity in our culture. That's beginning to erode. And as it continues to deteriorate, what we're finding out is what our personal and our corporate faith really is made of, what it's standing on. If you find yourself uh, over the last maybe couple months, six months, year, a couple years as the shift of our culture has been happening, if you find yourself to be, let's say, anxious or unsure, maybe not equipped to explain what you really believe about Christianity or what your hope is or your faith, that's why we've done this series, as we've seen Peter anchor us into an unshakable foundation, which is our hope. He's called us to have a purpose, to be obedient and to be priests in the world, to bring the presence of God into the world. He's called us to have an ethos, to have a different type of system in which we operate, which is through submission, first to God and to others, to have a responsive reason and to know that our path in this life will experience some suffering. We will suffer if we desire to live godly. But he leaves us in these last three sermons that we've heard, the last two and tonight, 
a way to go about this life, and that is that we have one another, a family that we should be investing in. You and I should be producing and growing a one another in our life system, our family of, of brothers and sisters. We have a testimony to the world and to God and to ourselves, and that is our trust in God in the times of difficulty. And tonight we're going to find the source of strength to take this journey with Christ, with each other, as we experience life in a non-Christian culture. You know, as Peter brings this letter to a close in chapter 5, you might expect him to send us off with some motivational, maybe powerful idea. You know what's strange about his send-off is that it's not magical. It's not even mysterious. You know, Peter doesn't give us some new insight into the mind of God that we didn't have. He leaves us with the simple route to the strength that we all need to endure this life. And it's found in verse 5, as uh, uh, Dale read for us. It's incredibly simple. It's the center, it's the heart of the text that holds this entire chapter 5 together. And he says this very, very plainly in verse 5, that all of us should be clothed with humility. Clothed with humility. Now, humility in Peter's day, very much like in our day, is so often misunderstood, and then because of that misunderstanding is so often not really a virtue that many people seek after. It's a virtue that we enjoy other people having. We enjoy interacting with people that are humble. We enjoy um, engaging with people that are humble. But it's not necessarily a cultural virtue that is held up in high esteem that all of us should seek after. Our world doesn't really teach us that humility is something that we should pursue. This is an expression of the fallen human heart, which is at its core prideful. You know, that's what all human heart really struggles with, is the exaltation of self, which is human pride. Sin has taught us that pride is our path to dominance, to survival, and to strength. And humility is weakness giving up, concession, or quitting. And so when we hear Scripture call for us to clothe ourselves with humility, we oftentimes think to ourselves, well, I've got to resign myself now. I've got to give up on my ambition. I've got to let go of adventurous goals. I've got to give up on my fight. And that's simply not true when it comes to explaining what Christianity and, and humility really is. You see, humility is not giving up strength. Humility is finally knowing where you get real strength. So humility is not just emptying yourself of courage and strength. Humility is you and I finally acknowledging where we get real strength from. And as C.S. Lewis so aptly put it in his letter, he said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not like putting yourself down. Humility is not the skill of saying, I'm going to put myself down, I'm not worth anything. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility, C.S. Lewis said, is thinking of yourself less. Humility is then not the end of your life. It is the end of the death cycle of obsessing over your life. Humility is, the, is the, finally the conclusion of the death to you obsessing over yourself. Timothy Keller called it the blessed self-forgetfulness. The joy of just 
forgetting about yourself. That's really what humility is. And when you and I understand the blessing of having real humility, we'll quickly find out that it is our pathway to what real freedom is. And it is our only access to true strength. And so in our text, Peter shows us at its core that humility is exactly what we need to not only have the favor, the blessing of God, but also how to navigate life. Peter shows us a couple things about humility. First, he shows us how it works itself out in a corporate setting, in the context of church. In verses 1-5, through he teaches how the church is to operate. And we don't have time tonight. We're going to get to some teaching on this later. But verses 1-4, through Peter exhorts his fellow elders. This is not just a term that is designated for older Christians. This is not an age designation. This is a designation of those that are called to be shepherds, overseers, pastors, elders in the church. And Peter has a lot of words, if you look in verses 1 through 4, on how elders are to operate in humility. And then he also says in verse 5 to the younger how they are to operate in humility. Now, the only thing I want to observe about how how humility operates in the church for tonight's purposes is this. Notice the difference in the time that Peter spends teaching elders how to operate with humility, and then how much time Peter spends teaching younger people how to operate with humility. Notice the difference. You've got to look at your Bible. Look at verses 1-4, through and then look in verse 5. Look how much time Peter has to spend explaining, instructing elders how to carry out their task with humility, and then how he explains to younger people how to practice humility. Do you notice the difference? It's massive, isn't it? It's huge. Now, there's one observation I'm going to make for you tonight with this, and, that, and then we've got to move on because we've got a lot, else, a lot of other things to talk about. First of all, let me say this. Uh, P- Peter says a lot of things to elders about how they need to shepherd the flock, which is an incredibly difficult task. In fact, that's why he, um, uh, the Hebrew writer says that to us who have overseers, we should let them do their job with joy and not make it difficult on them because it's an incredibly difficult task. He says a lot of things in verses 1-4 through to elders on how to shepherd with humility. But he says in verse 5 to the younger ones, look what he says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. (laughs) That's it. So here's the first observation I noticed about how this works out corporately. First of all, you can practice humility before you fully understand humility. Notice what he says to the younger people. Hey, be subject to the elders. You notice he doesn't explain all the whys and the hows. You notice he doesn't get into the nuance of when an elder does this, make sure you respond this way because that's what humility is. And humility is this, and here's how you opt. He just says, hey, younger people, for a moment, be subject to your elders. So you can practice humility before you fully understand all the ins and outs and the nuances of it. It starts with the simple acknowledgement that you don't know everything. And you cannot do everything yourself. And there's not a person in this room or behind this pulpit that, can't, that, that should not be able to say that. To start with this basic understanding that I don't possess within myself the ability to do everything and the knowledge to know everything. So if that's true, for just a split second, I can pause and listen to somebody else. Younger people, subject yourself to elders. The second thing I would uh, point out to you corporately 
is that as you grow older, apparently Peter recognizes that you have to fight for your humility. So maybe you started out life young and you had some good uh, upbringing, you were trained to be humble. As you grow in Christ, as you mature, as experience comes to you, as you learn the word, as you begin to apply that, it looks to me like Peter is saying to the elders, you've got to fight diligently to remain humble. And so as we grow older, we've got to continue to work at being humble. Being humble is not something we inherit and then just commonly have the rest of our life. Humility in a corporate setting is the lifeblood for the strength of our church, for the strength of our fellowship. You see, humility opens up the door for real confession to happen. Humility opens up the door for us to mutually learn how to repent towards God with each other. Humility allows us to support each other without looking down on each other to give each other strength and encouragement, and to pray for each other without judgment. Humility is the precursor for authenticity in fellowship. And where there is genuineness in fellowship, Satan cannot be near that because he runs from truth. Humility is needed for us to have strength corporately. But let's get to the personal side of this down in verse 6. Um, Peter uses a, a, a metaphor from Old Testament literature as he pulls from, uh, after he pulls the proverb that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6, Peter says this Humble yourselves, the personal aspect of humility. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, this isn't just poetic. This is Peter pulling from Old Testament literature a, a phrase that the Jews would understand. God's mighty hand was a sign of His power, a sign of His charge over creation and over people, over the world. It was a sign of God working in ways that you and I cannot work. It was a sign of God doing things that mankind could not done and do. And so in the Old Testament, when you would see the mighty hand of God, that would be the Old Testament writer saying, this is God doing only what God can do. He is greater than us. He is more powerful than us. And Peter is saying, you need to humble yourself under His mighty hand. His hand in the Old Testament is used to deliver His people. Exodus 3 said it's the mighty hand of God that brought Israel out of Egypt. So He's a deliverer from our problems and our sufferings. God's mighty hand is a hand of protection. He guards us. He safeguards us. He, he provides care and protection. And so under His mighty hand, there's safety and refuge. But God's mighty hand is also a hand of refinement and discipline. It would be the mighty hand of God that would refine His people, that would challenge them and discipline them so that they would become the people that God wants them to be. So how do you and I humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? The great thing about Peter is that he's going to tell you explicitly how to practice humility. So we're going to get some ins and outs, some how-tos on how you and I can practice humility. And within these imperatives of what they're called or commands, there's a great diagnostic tool, meaning... When you hear these commands that here's how you practice humility, as you look at your own life and see, are you practicing them or are you not? That's a diagnostic tool to say, I, maybe I could grow in my humility a little bit more. So let's look at these three ways that Peter tells us how to practice humility. Look at the first one in verse 7. After he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, so that he will exalt you in due time. Here's the first practice of humility. 
casting your anxieties, your cares, your worries upon God. Taking your anxieties and casting them. The action word here is casting, and that's the word that someone would use if they were going to put a saddle on a horse. Um, they, they have to throw like a blanket. Tori, what's that thing called, Todd? The blanket up on the horse, right? Isn't there a blanket you have to put on the horse? I'm right, aren't I? Saddle pad. All right, you got to throw the saddle pad on the horse, then you put the saddle on the horse. The word casting is the very same word, which means I'm holding on to this saddle pad and I'm going to throw it up onto the horse, and now it's on the horse. I'm taking what was in my possession, and I'm transferring it to the possession of somebody else. Casting. But what are we casting? Well, Peter uses the word that's best translated in the English today to be anxiety, care, or worry. You know, anxiety, uh, we might think of it to be something different today, but it is not a new phenomenon. In fact, you know, Sigmund Freud wrote a book on it in 1929. Kierkegaard wrote a book 80 years before about anxiety. In fact, uh, the guy that uh, really was the major mover in Greek life for the, for the medis- medical field, Hippocrates, said in the 4th century B.C., listen to his writing from four centuries before Christ, anxiousness is a difficult disease. The patient thinks he has something like a thorn pricking him and nausea torments him. Fourth century B.C., the guy that, you know, the Hippocratic Oath that doctors take to to practice medicine, this is the guy that laid the groundwork for the medical field, said, anxiety or anxiousness is a terrible disease. It's like pricking people on their side. And nausea is constantly tormenting them. Anxiety. Anxiety has always existed, but here's what research is saying now that it's actually on the rise. It's increasing. In fact, it's in the DSM now. The, the, it's, it's on the spectrum of, of um, psychology and the, dis- and, the, and the disorders of psychology today. It's on the rise. It's incredibly um, active today. And for those of you that have not experienced anxiety, maybe there's none of you in here, but it's incredibly torturous. It's miserable. I'll just share with you openly, I'm someone that has struggled deeply with anxiety um, in my life. Uh, I thought normal existence was you wake up and you feel like you have battery acid on your chest. I just thought that's how you're supposed to wake up during the day. Um, Didn't know that. Open my eyes before the feet hit the floor and I'm already anxious. What I got to do, I'm already behind. Oh no, things are falling up already. And without my spiritual life for the last few years, I I don't know what I would do. And I want to say as I get into talking to you a little bit about anxiety, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this because it's reaching epidemic levels in our culture. So I'm going to spend a little time talking about anxiety tonight. Um, I want to tell you that I'm not a trained clinical practitioner at all, and that if you do experience symptoms of anxiety, you should go see a family doctor. You should talk to somebody about that. Um, There are times when medical intervention is good and necessary and helpful. Um, I am one who has experienced doing that before. Um, For a very short time, for a few months, I actually did need some help with that. And it introduced me to a new existence that I never knew was. Um, The best way I can describe it for me physically was like somebody took a full bathtub and pulled the drain up and just drained the anxiousness out of me. It was incredible. It introduced me to a new experience that I'd never had before. But mainly, I found that there was a lot of spiritual aspects that could help me with it. I want to share some of those with you. Um, The question today that many people are asking is, What's causing people to be so anxious, right? 
This is epidemic in our culture. What's causing people to have, have so much anxiety? There are a few things that have increased in our culture that I want to share with you that I think are playing into that. The first one is this. It might sound a little bit strange. It might sound a little bit like we have ingratitude, but this is true. The increased amount of choice is really playing into people's anxiety. Did you know that Levi's has 233 versions of female jeans that you could buy today? 233. You guys are like, what's Levi's? That's not cool. All right, whatever. (laughs) I see some of you teeny boppers out there mocking me. Uh, Did you know that Mountain Dew has over 50 versions of their flavors? 50. Did you know that if you went to a high university today, you would have the choice of 250 academic undergraduate majors to choose from? Choice. It's incredible. It's intense. Increased choice is not just a result of more options, but it's also, in our culture, been a transfer of responsibility. Let me explain. Our culture says over and over to our young people that you have the world in front of you and you can be anything you want to be. Now go do it. There's a lady in Virginia, her name is Meg Jay. She's a psychiatrist who operates with just people who are 20 and 30, in the 20s and 30s. And she wrote a book called The Defining Decade, calling your 20s a defining decade, where many people are delaying their adolescence into their 20, mid-20s, late 20s, they're just putting it off. And what she finds over and over in all these stories is, she says 20-somethings feel like they're dropped in the middle of the ocean and they don't know which way to swim where the island is. They're just overwhelmed. The pressure is too much. Where do I go? I've been told that I can be anything I want to be and the world is in front of me and I can do anything and I don't know where to go. Which choice to make? Are you following me? Okay. In fact, that's not true, by the way, because if I wanted to be a linebacker in the NFL, I can't do that. I can't. Young people, that's not true. You have certain giftings, you have certain abilities, and you're going to make some choices about what you want to do. And hear me, it's okay. You know, it's going to be okay. All right. There was some research done that said that um, from, I believe this was uh, Cal Berkeley, that said kids that came from homes that had very little choice as they grew up, suffered from anxiety on a very small scale. They just had very little choice, so they just had to grind it out and live their life. In fact, a psychiatrist from London named Peter Kruger said this. Here's what his work has shown him. That young people today believe that if you make the wrong decision, having had a full range of choices, you have no one in life to blame but yourself. And that pressure is producing anxiety. Okay, that's one choices. Number two, exposure. For all the good that technology has brought us, which I absolutely love, that I can see pictures of my cousin's kids in California. I love that. It's fantastic. There have been some side effects, and overexposure is one of them. Social media is a constant stream of information about other people's lives to you. Let me tell you something. You and I were never designed to consume as much information about other people's lives as we are consuming. You were never created to contain that much information about somebody else's life. You just weren't. And what happens in a fallen heart, a heart that has pride, which all of us do, and if you can't say that, that's prideful that you can't say that, all of us do, is as we are flooded with information about other people's lives, the natural inclination of pride is to do this, to compare. 
C.S. Lewis brilliantly said this. He said, listen, a prideful heart doesn't delight in money. It delights in having more money than somebody else. A prideful heart doesn't delight in having good kids. It delights in having better kids than somebody else. Pride, by necessity, demands comparison. It has to have comparison. That's what it does. And as you are flooded with information about other people's lives, and you're getting only the modified, edited, positive version of it, we're left with constant comparison. Anxiety. Now here's what happens, though. We all know that we do that, whether you like to say it or not. And if we watch other people's lives comparing, criticizing, judging, we now are beginning to live with the belief that everybody in the world is doing that to us. Life is now lived on a stage, we believe. And you know what people on a stage are subject to? Constant review. Constant critique. Begging for the applause and it's never enough because the show is eventually over. We are a people living on a stage now believing that the entire world is watching us and they're critiquing us and they're judging us and, our, and, and we can't bear up underneath that scrutiny. and It's making us anxious. Let me give you the third one. So we've got choice, exposure. The third one is access. Our technology is a gateway to anything that we need, anything we want. In fact, in our pocket, in our phones, is the access to find any information that we want. So we have all kinds of access. In fact, Baylor, uh, in 2014, Baylor University in Texas did a study that found that amongst university students, boys spend eight hours per day looking at their phone. Girls, you spend 10 hours a day. And I started thinking about that, and I don't think that's too far off in my own life. In your phone. For some of you maybe that don't do the phone, on your computer, right? Now here's what they would say. The key access for us, for many of us, really is this. Now think with me for a moment. It's the access to somebody else. That's what we're getting in our phones. The access to not be alone anymore. Sherry Turkle wrote a book called Alone Together. And she said this, phones in our pockets offer the gratifying fantasy that we never have to be alone. The moment we are alone, even for a few seconds, we become anxious, we panic, we fidget, and we reach for our device. You see, here's what phones are doing. They're giving us access to not be alone, so we think. What, all, what does all this have to do with humility, right? I just gave you this long kind of rampage about this. What does it have to do with humility? Well, think about it with choice. We're anxious because we believe the weight of the world is on our shoulders. Remember what that psychologist said? If we make the wrong choice having all these choices, we have no one to blame but who? Ourselves. We're alone. Think about exposure. Our lives are constantly under review, constantly being judged, we believe. And with access, we are numbing our loneliness, not with solitude and prayer, not finding God in these moments of space, but we're numbing our loneliness with just something that's not true or something that's not real. And here's how pride plays into this. Pride tells you that you are the only one who decides your future. No one else is invested in it. No one else is directing it. That's what pride does. Pride tells you that you are being judged on your performance alone, and so your performance better be good. That's what pride does. Pride tells you that you can solve your loneliness all by yourself without the risk 
of really being in a relationship. That's what pride does. It exalts the self. And here's what we're learning. It's not working. Our pride is destroying us. Now, before you generation that are older than millennials start doing the, ah, you millennial people, I'm going to... Technology doesn't make egomaniacs. Current culture does not make egomaniacs. Culture just constantly reveals our egomaniac. It just reveals it. And all of us are subject to it. This is why Peter says, take your anxieties. The sin is not having an anxiety. He says, take your anxiety and cast it on God because God cares for you. He's there as your companion and guide. He's the one who took the judgment for you. And he gave you a perfect record so you don't have to worry about being reviewed. And he says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He says you're not alone. But you have to know that he cares for you. And it takes humility to believe that God cares for you. Here's where it all comes together on humility. It takes humility to believe that you are loved by God. Did you know that it is not a humble thing to say, God can't love me? It is not a humble thing for you to look at yourself and say, there's no way God could ever love me. In fact, that's just the negative version of pride. The positive version of pride is, of course God loves me. I'm amazing. But the other end of that spectrum is still pride that says, God can't love me. Because who are you evaluating when you says, God can't love me? Come on, you tell me. Who, no, when you say, God can't love me, who are you thinking about? Yourself. You're thinking about, you're thinking about yourself. I'm not good enough. Look what I've done. Oh, I have no value. Who are you thinking about? You're still obsessed with you. And the truth of Scripture, God says, I love you because I chose to covenant myself to you, but not based upon you, but based upon my nature. How dare you disrespect my quality of love for you? And so to say there's no way God cares about me, there's no way that God loves me, is just as much pride as to stand up and say, of course God loves me. It's still obsessed with you. And what you need is to stop thinking about you and look into Scripture and read what he says when he says, I chose to love you because of my nature, not yours. I woke up and said, I love you because I love you. And I don't care what you say about it. And it takes humility to receive love. It takes pride to earn love, humility to receive love. And when you receive that kind of love, you'll take every anxiety you have about what you're going to do in your future, about who's judging you, about where you're going to go, and you're going to throw it on the Lord because you know He loves you. Are you with me on humility? You can't survive this world without humility. It'll crush you. Let me move to the last one. I'm just going to skip because I know I took a really long time on that. The second one is just be sober-minded. That means that you and I need to acknowledge that we don't have the right mind without God. We need to have a renewed mind. So we have to recognize that our mind needs renewed. We have to be willing to live out of that new mind, that divine reality. And the third one is this. He says that we need to put up a vigilant defense. We need to fight and resist the devil. Now this might sound to be a little bit aggressive when I say humility, that you and I need to be resisting firmly the devil. But I think you'll see what I mean. The first thing Peter does is he identifies our enemy. Our enemy. He says it's our enemy, meaning Satan is against us, against God and against us. He says that he's a subtle enemy. Paul would tell us that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, meaning he shows up in ways that look like they're good. And the third thing he says is he is seeking to rip us to shreds, to devour us, to destroy us. 
This is the spiritual battle that you need to be aware of. Now he tells us his name. His name is the devil. Devil. That word devil means the accuser, one who slanders you, one who comes to you and says what's not true about you, but in a way that's trying to hurt you. He wants to tell you things about you that are not true, but are destructive to you. But he also tells us his title. So he's an accuser. His title is adversary, which is a legal term. This means the legal person who is your opponent in a courtroom. Now, you've got to follow Peter on the metaphor to get the teaching. Peter says that the devil, the accuser, takes you into a legal setting, a courtroom. That's where he wants to devour you. And he shows up there as your legal opponent. Now, let's think about the metaphor. In this metaphor, if he is your legal opponent, who's the judge? Satan knows. Revelation says he presents himself before God to accuse us. God is the judge. Where is the courtroom? This is crucial. Where is the courtroom now? Where does God dwell? First in heaven. But where? Come on, Keith, you know. Right here. Didn't Jesus say that I'll be with you always? My Father and I will come and dwell with you in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so God is the judge. The courtroom is here in us. What is His accusation of you? It's a wide range of items, but just for a moment, think of the negative self-talk that you do, and you'll find out what your accusations are. For Jesus, and for most of us, it's like this. It's one of two things. Usually, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Satan attacked Him on His purpose, that you're not living your purpose. You know, come be a, I'll make you a king. And His identity... If you were really a son of God, you would take this bread and, or stone and make it bread. His purpose or his identity, and that's usually where you get attacked by Satan. Uh, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, you're wasting time. You're terrible at this. He's attacking your purpose or your identity. You're not really God's child. That's where he attacks us. So what's your defense? First of all, if you're not aware of this, this is the spiritual battle that happens every day for your soul that you've got to engage. If you're not, you're just getting mauled. Here's your defense. One of two options. The first option is you can go with pride, which means to mount up your defense, to self-justify. So when Satan comes and says, you're a worthless bum, you say, no, I'm not. I've done this, this, and this. And you've just made your own defense. Pride can do that. You can build your own resume, and you can defend against Satan with pride, but eventually he's going to find a kink in your armor, and he's going to destroy you. The other option is humility. And how does humility work? He says that we are... Um, resisting the devil, verse 9, firm in our faith. Firm in our faith. What is the Christian faith? What, is, what are we firm in? The Bible presents that as the gospel. The news that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that you were supposed to live. So when Satan attacks you on what you've done that is not good, you say, you're right. But I've got a record of performance that's not mine, that's been a gift of mine. It's perfect. And I stand in that by faith, not my own life. And then also, Jesus died to death, you should have died. So he took the punishment that I deserve. And so when I'm attacked by the accuser, I either by pride mount up my own defense and self-justify and defend myself, or I turn in faith, faith and point to the work of Jesus and say, I'm okay because of him. You're doing one or the other every day right now. Right now. One is pride and one is humility. Pride will make you feel okay for a moment, but it will lead to destruction. Humility will lead to life. And you say to uh, Satan, like C.S. Lewis told us, 
when he would receive accusation constantly from Satan, which is the negative self-talk that's always in our mind, he would say, yeah, you're probably right, Satan, but I don't rely on my own resume. I rely on his, and I'm liberated from that. You see, we fight like Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 6 in the strength that God provides. And now think where Satan attacks us, both in our mind and in our heart. He attacks us at our core to rip us to shreds that we are not doing what we're supposed to be doing, that we're not the people we're supposed to be. And he's constantly mauling Christians. How do you fight? Paul says, put on the armor. What is the armor? Well, what guards your heart? The breastplate of righteousness. Not yours, but whose? Jesus Christ. He had a perfect righteousness that he gives you, and that protects your heart. But what about your mind? What protects your brain? The helmet of salvation that I've been saved by the grace of God. And I put that thing on my head. And when I have those, when I'm fighting Satan, I have my salvation and Jesus' righteousness that protects my heart and mind. And I'm battling every day, not with pride on my own resume, but with faith and humility for what Christ has done. That's the spiritual battle. This is the universal experience that Peter says of all Christians. And Peter says he found his strength in verse 1, as a witness of the suffering of Christ, and a partaker of His glory. You see, you won't partake in the glory of Christ until you finally witness His sufferings. When you look at His sufferings, not only see the atrocity of them, that they were awful, that they were evil, that they were painful and horrible, but when you look deep into those sufferings and see them for what they are, but for who they were done for, that will win your heart to partake in the glory that will be revealed someday. In verse 10, he says this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself, God Himself will do this for you, restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. No access without humility. Humility brings you to faith, it brings you to love, it brings you to trust, and it brings you to the strength to survive the spiritual battle of living life, not just, in any, not just in a non-Christian culture, but in any culture you'll ever live. And I hope that the series has been a blessing to you, and I hope that if you are not walking by faith in the light of the gospel, that we can please help you. It's available we can, as you stand and sing.